uh, I was just highlighting two or three minutes ago that uh, we obviously all look forward to having a little recap as to what on earth has happened in the last 48, if not 72 hours, and uh, what happened with those mounting and shaping uh, operations, given the fact that we are now under the veil of this big information blackout, albeit that certain things are seeping through. And CJ had highlighted that there's a lot of Excalibur going on. CJ, take it away. Yeah, Thomas, great to have you back here. Um, so happy to have only a week, but I think it was a good week to come back on because so much has happened. We're getting so many questions about artillery. Uh, and so with that, I guess before I get to these uh, you know, pre-done questions here, I just want to ask you for the past week, is there anything that's um, got your attention or you think has been under um, discussed in terms of whether it be artillery or missiles? Because I just want to know where your head is at before we start, because we have so much to talk about in so little time. I will just highlight one, two things that I noticed this week. I'm following quite a lot of Ukrainian artillery officers and men on the front. The ones in Kherson got as much ammunition as never before. So uh, the amount of ammunition they got is for them, they don't know how to even stack it. So I'm pretty sure that the requested silence about the cash on front right now by the Ukrainians has something to do with it's on down there. Um, the British knew it because they said that the Ukrainians will probably take all of cash on back until the end of next week. The Ukrainian troops understand it because you don't get that much ammo unless you really need it. And I think the Russians understood it, and they just don't know yet how bad it's going to hit them. That was one of the things that I noticed this week. And the other thing is that the Ukrainians requested an immense amount of Rams shells, which is basically artillery shells that contain anti-tank mines. And the first of this kind of weapon were delivered by Germany um, for the M270, where we saw them being used in the offensive at Kupiansk to um, block the Russian retreat, because basically all behind the Russians, where they wanted to flee, it was full of anti-tank mines. And then the Ukrainians requested from the Americans a thousand. And obviously they used them already up and requested them out of 5,000, which shows that the Ukrainians have found these um, artillery deployed anti-tank munitions to be highly useful. And you need them for two things. One, if you want the enemy to not be able to reinforce a sector because there's all kinds of mines lying around or because you want the enemy uh, to be unable to retreat. So the Ukrainians clearly are on the offensive and needed these ranch shells basically to guarantee that the Russians can not flee and not reinforce their front lines. Also, that points to a upcoming offensive and the amount of 5,000, um, yeah, 5,000 by nine. That is uh, 45,000 mines. So the Ukrainians are going to drop 45,000 mines behind the Russian lines. And uh, yeah, I don't want to be a Russian tank driver or any driver in this kind of environment because these are 
magnetic um, electromagnetic fuses basically if you just drive near it the mine goes off already so this is going to be fun for the russians well and, and to that end thomas we saw <laughs> russians driving what looked like to be their own minefield in, in plain sight that they had planned so that doesn't bode well for these minefields coming from the skies no absolutely not and one thing the american mines in the ramps in this remote and um, anti-armor mine system uh, are much smaller and much harder to detect than the German 82 mines that come from the um, M270 missiles. So um, it's going to be for the Russians much more difficult to see these mines. Unless it snows, then you see them very well. But it's not going to snow for another two months. So in this little grass there is, there will be mines everywhere. And out of nine shells and uh, nine mines that come down, only two have an anti-handling detonator. So Russian sappers are like, okay, seven out of nine, I can pick up. Two out of nine, when I pick them up, they detonate. So the Russian sappers will not touch them. And the ramps come in two variants. One has a short fuse until it self-destructs, and one has a long fuse until it self-destructs. Naturally, the Russians don't know what kind of mine they have in front of them. Will this blow up in four hours, in 48 hours, sometime in between? So basically, you don't touch them for the time, and you just leave them there and hope that after 48 hours they all blow up. And uh, this is going to be a, a real big problem because now uh, Ukraine has more ways to launch it. Uh, of course, we, we've already started to discuss the U.S. aid package that was uh, announced this week, including more HIMARS ammunition, the 5,000 RAM rounds that Thomas mentioned, in addition to 500 more precision-guided munitions for 155, possibly a combination of Excalibur and perhaps PGK. But it was also the, the Ramstein 6 meeting of 50-plus countries coming together in support of Ukraine to coordinate military aid. And so, Thomas, from that, which which happened uh, a day or two days after the massive missile struck, uh, missile attack strike we saw hit all over the country, what are your biggest takeaways from what other countries have uh, decided to give? You know, some highlights for me include, of course, the French LRU or the M270 equivalent, you know, more air defense systems, uh, including the U.S. NASANs and then also the German IRST being expedited so they'll arrive sooner. What did you take away from that meeting in terms of what future aid will be delivered from this week? Um, let's go one step back before we speak about the aid. Um, the attack on Kiev was completely senseless and useless, and you could very beautifully see what crap technology the Russians have. One missile was aimed at the presidential palace, and it fell down about, I would say, 400 meters behind it, next to Marinsky Park, on a crossroad next to a hotel, and completely missed the presidential palace, which is gigantic. Uh, one fell into a, kinder, uh, in a, a playground for children. I assume it was also meant for the presidential palace, but it fell short. The other one fell long, too long. And yes, so these images only help to gain Ukraine more sympathy and spur European and American politicians to give Ukraine more air defense systems. So the Russians are basically 
helping Ukraine with this. These are strikes that are annoying, but they're not going to defeat Ukraine. They don't change anything on the battlefield. And it leads just to Europe and America giving Ukraine better air defense and faster. So you have to be dumb like the Russians to do that. And yeah, obviously they keep to their strategy of being the dumbest uh, military on the planet. Congratulations. Um, the result of these strikes on Kiev obviously were that the Europeans and the Americans decided it's time to give Ukraine as soon as possible air defense systems that can shoot down these missiles. Uh, as we have seen, the Russian cruise missiles fly very slow, 900, 700 to 900 kilometers per hour, typical cruise missile speed. Uh, you can shoot them down with a manpad. The Ukrainian guy sees one fly overhead and he knows the Russians, if there's one coming over my head, the Russians send them one after another exact the same flight path. You can just stand up, grab your, your stinger and start waiting for the next one and then shoot it down. Pretty easy. So I think the Ukrainian shot down two or three with stingers. So stinger is like um, the old ones, like $40,000, $50,000 and these cruise missiles are like a million. So yeah, the Russians basically wasted some of the most expensive missiles and because they're so dumb, you've sent them in a file. So one, and then you know, in the same flight path, in two minutes comes the next, and then two minutes later comes the next, and two minutes later comes the next. The American cruise missiles fly completely different paths and more zigzag and lower, so you don't gonna you're not gonna be able to shoot them down with man pads, but you know the Russians tried to copy the Americans and they copy it very badly and then they have no clue how to properly employ that stuff and this is the result. So to sum it up, the Russians cruise missiles like Caliber that they launch from their ships and so on and from their airplanes. Once we have Iris-D and NASAMS in Ukraine, the Ukrainians will shoot down 100% of the cruise missiles. They will shoot down almost 90% of the drones because drones basically is a, is a model plane that flies slow, is a lumbering piece of junk. And when you see it with a radar, you can shoot it easily down. It's no big deal. Ballistic missiles are the problem. There's not many that can shoot these ballistic missiles like an Iskander down because they come in very fast. Those are the ones that are a problem, ballistic missiles. But as we know, the Russians are running low on them because they have been producing those missiles for like a decade. And like a few a year, I don't know, 10 to 30 a year or something. And they spent, uh, they fired so many now. And some they will have to keep in reserve. So the ballistic missiles that the Ukrainians can't intercept, there's very few of them now. So what the Russians did by attacking Kiev was help the Ukrainians convince the Europeans and the Americans to give Ukraine better air defense. So I would just say thank you, Putin, for helping the Ukrainians get better air defense. Like everything you do, you really help Ukraine. Well, perfect. I think that sums it up. And, and before we go to our next topic, which will be more on uh, Iran and, and some drones that might be 
coming to uh, Russia's help, although it is too little, too late. I want to remind everyone in the space that while Russian missiles are crashable, uh, the Maria port is certainly uncrashable. So I know we went down a few hours ago. Please, in the bottom right of your screen, screen go ahead and like uh, and retweet the space. Tell everyone that we got Thomas here, and we're so happy to have him back. Uh, thank you, everyone. And with that, so as you just pointed out, Thomas, Russia has been running missiles. We saw the Ukrainian uh, general staff infographics saying they were down to, I believe, about 600, uh, which is concerning for Russia, considering the fact that, you know, hell, they just launched a, over 100 this week. So if they were to do that every week, which we know they certainly do not, they would be out very soon. And that's very difficult to stretch out, especially when they can't make more. And as you pointed out, the Iranian drones, which they've gotten, have been shot down in very large numbers, right? On, on certain days, 11 out of 13, some days, all of them and more. And even in Odessa, uh, three or four days ago, perhaps the first Iris-T interception uh, where they shot down every single caliber missile. So those, those cruise missiles you were mentioning. So the air defense is getting better, which is good. And then we got the news today that Iran was going to give ballistic missiles to Russia. Now, for my point of view, this solves some short-term problems, but doesn't get around the fact that, you know, Russia is still, the, the strategy overall is just not very coherent. But I wonder what your thoughts are on this, uh, Thomas, because we've talked a lot about Iranian artillery ammunition ending up in, in the war there. We've talked about the drones, but what do you make of Iran giving ballistic missiles uh, to Russia? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is this is another sign that Russia is fucked. Russia declared itself to be the second most powerful military in the world. And they basically can't manufacture enough missiles. They have to turn to Iran to get missiles and drones. <clears throat> Which also means sanctions are working because the Russians are unable to ramp up production if there's no chips and electronics coming in from the West. Iran delivering missiles, it's a nuisance. I mean, there's 50 plus countries delivering weapons to Ukraine, and now the Russians found one country which is selling Russia weapons. How many missiles can the Iranians send? 100? 200? What are the Russians going to use them on? Ukrainian infrastructure. Because with these missiles, I guarantee you, they will not be used on the battlefield against troops. The Russians will use them against uh, power station, uh, communal heating plants, and so on. Bridges, if they go by the Syria playbook where the Russians used all their missiles first, then they will try to hit schools and kindergartens and playgrounds and hospitals and homes for the elderly, you know, the typical Russian targets when they know they're losing a war, then they start killing civilians in the hope they will demotivate the troops at the front, which is not going to work. So Russia buying in Iran missiles is a sign that Russia is pretty, 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 pretty deep in the hole and doesn't know how to get out. Um, what Iran giving missiles to Russia could lead to, what I hope it will lead to, is Israel finally getting off the fence and saying, you know what? Iran wants to eradicate Israel. It's the prime policy goal of the Iranian regime. 
Now Iran is giving missiles to Russia and definitely going to get stuff from Russia in return. Either missile technology or nuclear weapons technology or air defense systems, which will hamper Israel's ability to strike Iran and its nuclear program in case that becomes necessary. So I hope that Israel will be like, you know what, since Iran is all in, we should help Ukraine openly now and start delivering to Ukraine air defense systems. Because Israel, being in the crosshairs of Iran, is the country with the best ballistic missile defense systems in the world. Azerbaijan was attacked by Armenia with Iskander ballistic missiles. They tried to hit the capital Baku in 2020, and whatever Armenia shot at Baku was intercepted. Where did Azerbaijan buy its missile defense? In Israel, obviously. So we know the Israeli systems work against the Russians and the Iranian uh, missile program, missiles. So my hope is that Iran getting in will finally lead to Israel being like, you know what? Let's give, like the Europeans and like the Americans, air defense systems and missile defense systems to Ukraine. And, you know, just to dig down a little bit deeper, Thomas, I think people are, you know, very reasonably worried because, you know, I think everyone was very hopeful that perhaps the, the missile strikes were coming to an end sooner rather than later, and this would appear to, to draw them out more so. And additionally, you know, John and I were talking about it earlier. My old unit was at El-Assad when it was struck by Iranian ballistic missiles. Granted, those were the, the Qaim ones, so a little bit larger and a little bit better than what um, Russia is getting. But they were, you know, for all intents and purposes, pretty good, right? So they fired 16, 11 made it to the target, and I think six or eight of them were pretty much dead on hits, right? The CEP being between three and 10 meters. So these missiles are, you, you could even say, perhaps uh, slightly better than the Russian ones. But could you sort of, um, you know, help us not to worry so much. Will these new air defense systems that uh, Europe and the U.S. and, and many others have given, will this uh, counteract the Iranian missiles better, the worse, the same? Any thoughts? Um, I think the same applies here that we, these Iranian missiles, I think, are all ballistic missiles. So it's going to be difficult to intercept them. It's not, not impossible, but it's much more difficult than to in intercept a cruise missile. So, um, at least if the Iranian missiles are more precise, you know, they're not going to fly over their target and hit a playground, but they will hit the target. Um, the best way to prevent this from becoming a problem for Ukraine is to put a massive amount of pressure on Iran, you know. And since the European nations are all negotiating and the Americans with Iran about a new deal which would remove sanctions in return for Iran putting its nuclear program under international control. Uh, the way to stop the Iranians from helping the Russians with missiles and other technology is to basically have the Europeans, French, British, Germans, Italians, and Americans, someone else in the group. It's five plus one, no? Um, put pressure on Iran and tell them, you know, um, you want sanctions relief? If you deliver certain kinds of missiles to Russia, you don't get sanctions relief. 
forget it. And if you don't get sanctions relief, your economy will be shit. If your economy is bad, the people that have been rising up in Iran won't be calming down anytime soon because besides being oppressed, they have no economic future due to the sanctions. So Iranian regime, what do you want? Stay in power or give Russia some missiles? So I see here is the point to put some leverage on the Iranians. and. On the battlefield, those missiles are annoying, but they're not changing anything. What Putin would need is something like HIMARS. Only the Americans and the South Koreans have something like that. So he's not going to get that. Well, no, and that's, uh, you know, perhaps good news. And the last thing I really want to talk to you about, Thomas, in regards to this is uh, both Belgrade and Belarus, right? So we, we know that uh, Russia has been using uh, Belarus and also Western Russia to launch a lot of these missiles, uh, even as close as Belgorod, which is odd, of course, because it's right near the border and well within Ukrainian artillery and missile range. And in the past three or four days, we have seen uh, a remarkable shift in, in, in what's going on there with perhaps Ukraine using harms missiles uh, near the Belgorod airport today and quite possibly, again, not confirmed yet, Gimlers or some other long-range missiles to, to strike Belgorod. Uh, military targets, important to note, to note, including a power station, rail station, and the military airfield. And even um, such to a significant level that uh, two days this week, Ukraine has actually uh, put more missiles into Russia successfully than Russia put into Ukraine. So the, the, the tide is turning in this regard, no matter what Russia wants to get. But what do you think in terms of long-range missiles Ukraine should do? In this regard, we know they're not going to invade Russia, of course. We know they're trying to defend themselves. But what kind of systems and what kind of strategy would you like to see Ukraine do in terms of being able to, to push the Russian military back and keep them um, from a striking civilian infrastructure? Okay, Belgorod City. Um, I think this was a harm strike on an air defense site. Um, so far, we have heard from the Americans that they do not allow the Ukrainians to lose uh, to use um, GMLRS rockets to strike into Russia in the borders before 2014. So the Ukrainians can hit anything they want in Crimea, but at least that's what the Americans publicly say. Not in Russia, Belgorod is in Russia since centuries. So, so I think this was a harm strike, an anti-radiation missile strike and I this week three days ago I think it was Wednesday or Thursday Ukraine said that two of its jets fighter jets crashed in Poltava now during wartime you don't have two jets crashing in the same region on the same day out of the blue so I was suspicious that there might be some Russian long-range air defense system just over the border in Russia, like Belgorod or somewhere there, because that puts all of Kharkiv and part of Poltava region into range of Russian air defense systems. So the suspicion was that the Russians put one there, and until now they don't, didn't really use it, but now they decided to use it and start firing on Ukrainian jets. Um, what we now see. I think as Ukraine decided to destroy these Russian positions, you know, there's the radars and the harm missile. Once it has picked up the radar, it's going to destroy the radar. It's going to fly there and come down and detonate and 
shred the radar with an immense amount of shrapnel. And I think this, what we saw in Belgorod today, is basically the Ukrainians going after every single radar they found in the city. The airport radar, some S-300 radar, the Russians definitely put some Panzer or some other short-range system in there to have a point defense against Ukrainian attacks of this type. And you could see today the Ukrainian missiles came in and the Russian missiles all were fired and missed. Again, because Russian technology is junk, the American technology is 30 years ahead. So I think the Ukrainians were taking down all the Russian air defense systems in Belgorod to allow their fighter jets to fly um, combat missions, especially ground support missions in Kharkiv and Luhansk oblasts, which are very close to the border. Uh, like Ukrainians are currently flying ground support missions, close air support missions in Kherson, where the Ukrainians in August already, in August already destroyed basically every Russian air defense system. So, um, I think Belgorod got into the crosshairs for the simple reasons that there the Russians had some air defense systems. I also think that the Ukrainians used some of their own missiles they still had to strike key targets in Belgorod because the airport was a helicopter base for the Russians. And, you know, there's some fuel storage sites there. And if you hit that, it suddenly is not anymore a helicopter base because there's no fuel. And the Russians used the airport, airport in Belgorod to fly in mobilized men from Siberia and other regions to be trained in Belgorod because there's a military base there where yesterday some of the mobilized men killed some of the other mobilized men. So, you know, red on red violence, we should all applaud that. Russians killing Russians is very good. So taking out the airport and the air defense means that the Russians cannot fly in um fresh troops. It means that the Russians cannot fly the helicopters from there. It means that the Russians can't use the city to shoot down Ukrainian airplanes in the Ukrainian airspace. And harm missiles are a defense missile. So you don't strike a target that is not... Wait, let me rephrase that. The harm missile will not work if the radar is not on. If the radar is on, it's an active combatant because it's looking for targets. So if the Ukrainians use an American missile to strike at the Russian radar in Russia, it's self-defense. So the Americans have certainly no problem with the Ukrainians doing that. The Ukrainians using some American missiles to strike the airport fuel tanks. I think someone in Washington might not like that. So I think the Ukrainians used some of their own missiles which Ukraine definitely still has. And this leads me to my last question before we go to hands. Uh, Thomas, you're, you're setting me up so well. So you, we know Ukraine has this potential and they have these missiles. So there'd be some sort of conversion of Neptune or something else to, to strike pretty well, much better than the Russians it would seem, even if in much smaller quantities, to attack uh, you know targets that they see fit. So one week and a few days after Kerch, uh, which obviously was uh, one of the biggest events of the war and really has already changed the situation in the South dramatically with three to four day waits for ferries across 
um, a predicted repair time of July 2023. Do you have any more insights or thoughts than you did last week when the news was still very fresh in terms of how that uh, event occurred? Um, has anything changed your mind one way or another? About Kerch, not much has changed. I have seen a lot of people try to compare explosion size and such things, you know. Could it be a, a truck bomb and so on? Um, let's put it this way. All the people that tried to convince me that Saki was drones or Saki Airport was special forces or Saki Airport was some mythical Ukrainian ship-launched missile or whatever, all those same people are not trying to convince me it's a truck bomb. And looking at those people, I know they haven't seen a truck bomb all their life until they started Googling that 10 days ago. So please. Um, was Kerch Bridge an uh, attack hams missile? Yes, likely. I haven't changed my mind because attack hams the attack hams use a warhead designed to destroy structural targets. Okay? The, the warhead originally comes from the harpoon and it was meant to punch through the steel of ships and then through the inner walls of the ship. So that's a steel, outer steel wall of half an inch punched through, punched through the inner walls and then detonate in the ship and rip the ship in half and threw over pressure, killed the crew, and start fires. So that warhead was then used to create the AGM-84E, an air-launched version. And the warhead was improved, got a new fuse and a new warhead section and a new cover and so on. And the United States used that to blow up dams in Iraq. So there was not just some little things that blew up whole dams. One missile and the dam was gone. So concrete dam that holds back millions of tons of water and the missile smashed in it and blew it up. They used it to blow up uh, power stations and so on. So this warhead has an immense power, okay? And the harpoon missiles come in with Mach 0809. So it's a subsonic missile, okay? And the um, attack hams come in at Mach 4. Now, just think, there's a car. A car, let's say, weighs a ton. And this one-ton car hits a wall with 80 kilometers per hour. And the car is going to be totaled. The impact force is just going to total the car. Now, think, one ton coming at some wall or some bridge with 4,000 kilometers per hour and hitting on a space like a cup. And all that kinetic energy just smashes smashes, smash, smash, Hulk smash, uh, smashes into this little point. And then when all that kinetic energy comes down, it detonates on top of that. So, of course, uh, attack can destroy a bridge. And the precision of the attack is good enough to definitely destroy it. What else can I say about attack It's designed now, in the earlier times, it was designed to spray a cluster munitions over a wide area. Today, it's designed to come down vertically and hit targets with an extreme mass and extreme kinetic energy and top it off with a detonation. 
And just a little experiment. If you take your finger and angle your finger 45 degrees, right? Let's say over a table. So your finger at 45 degrees over a table, the finger is the warhead. If that warhead detonates, you will see some of it will go and hit the table, right? And some of it will blow up into the air above the table. So it will not hit the target. Now, attack cams comes down straight down. The M57 come down completely straight. So if you take your finger and it comes down, the finger goes straight to the table. It hits the table with an intense speed and then detonates. And if you look at your finger, the explosion will be going circular around your finger in all directions. So whatever structure is around that impact, it's going to be blown in all directions and destroyed. Could Kirch be a truck bomb? Yes, but just think about it. You can't use a timer because, as we know, the driver stopped for the night and didn't deliver on the agreed day. If you use a timed fuse, it would have blown up on a parking lot. Can you use a GPS fuse? Yes, you can. Still, the truck supposedly came from Ukraine, entered Romania, entered Bulgaria, was shipped to Georgia, was shipped to Armenia. If the Romanians would have found a truck full of explosives with some timer that comes from Ukraine, there would have been some pretty damn problems for Ukraine with the NATO. Same with Bulgaria. Same with Georgia. And then from Georgia, the whole truck went to Russia. Nobody checked it. And come on. Yes, it's possible. But since we know Ukraine has a missile that can strike targets in Crimea and it comes down vertically, because that's exactly what hit Saki Air Base in Crimea. The only American missile that comes down straight vertically is Atakams M57 and the M30 series and M31 series of the GMLRS. So, Ukraine received Atakams sometime end of July to strike Saki. Why should Ukraine spend an immense amount on a truck bomb and risk the relationship with Romania and Bulgaria for a truck bomb when it can just go back to some non-European Union country and tell them, could we please have an attack camps missile? They got four before and they got one now. Thomas, answer this, this dovetails into another point that we hear from the same people who argue with you and me to a smaller extent. Uh, but, but it couldn't have been a missile because none of the air defense Set off, were set off, and they've just answered their own question, haven't they? Yes. Let's. Okay. Can you explain? Can you explain to our audience why? Like, so the whole point is one of the, to the audience, people who who deride the idea that what Thomas is saying, and, and I fully agree, that's an attack. Them is they'll say that because the Russian air defense wasn't activated, it couldn't have been a missile. How how do air defense systems work, Thomas? What are they looking for? Okay. Um. The radar looks for objects in, in the air, in the space, and so on. Uh, Russian missiles, air defense missiles of the S-300 have an apogee of 30 kilometers. That means they can strike targets that are up to 30 kilometers above ground. That's what the Russians can strike, 30 kilometers. Officially, M-57 
has a ceiling of 50 kilometers. They are just two and a half Mount Everests above what the Russians can strike. That's the official range, uh, the official ceiling of an attack camps. Supposedly, the Americans had already test fired attack camps to an apogee above 80 kilometers. So, if an attack camps goes up at 80 kilometers, unless the Russians put their radar up and angle it towards where the missile is, the radar won't even pick it up. Because at that height, the Russians don't even bother to look with their radars for something. 80 kilometers, 50 kilometers. And then the attack camps, it's not a ballistic missile, it's a guided missile. When it's over the target, it dives. So now it comes down 50 kilometers, 40 kilometers, 30 kilometers. And the Russians are like, oh my God, there's a missile coming in at 4,000 kilometers an hour. So it takes the attack camps. Um, wait, four, um, Mach 4 is per second, 1,300 per second, right? Or Oh God, how much is Mach 4 per second? Something like one kilometer, right? I don't remember. 1.3 kilometers per second. Yes. So the Russians, thank you. So the Russians discover the attack camps at 30 kilometers and it flies with 1.3 kilometers speed down. That means the attack camps is between 20 to 30 seconds on target. When the Russians see their missile, they have 20 to 30 seconds to see it, recognize it, plot a intercept course, fire an interceptor. So the Russians in reality are basically at what the hell is that when the attack strikes. The attack come so fast down, the Russians don't have a chance to intercept it. The same is with GMLRS, which the Russians have not intercepted a single one since the Ukrainians got them to start to use them. The Russians see the GMLRS, but the GMLRS also fly in an unpredictable pattern, and then they come down so fast that the Russians have no time to intercept them. And that's why the Russians will have no chance to counter HIMARS or M270. The Ukrainians just can get those missiles and fire them, and no, they don't miss. They will be on target, and the Russians can't do anything, anything in this world to stop them. And if you tell me now, oh, the Russians can jam GPS, the Russians failed to jam GPS for seven months already, and the Russians certainly can jam GPS 50 kilometers above the Earth. And when the, um, when the attackers knows where it is and starts to dive, at that point, even if the Russians then manage to jam the last kilometer before the missile impacts, for those two seconds, the missile is not going to go off course. Just the last thing that I want to say, because people don't really understand this. Everyone is listening on their mobile phones right now. Your mobile phones know where you are down to two meters. And that's with the civilian GPS code. And there's two better, improved, and more accurate military GPS codes. And the M code is so precise 
Again, we can't discuss exact how precise it is, because I guarantee you, under these 2,000 listeners here, there's at least one or two Russian agents that are writing down what we say, what I didn't know. So we don't talk about precision here exactly. But when the Russians will pull up the Kerch Bridge, you will see the impact on the Kerch Bridge was exactly on the middle white line of the bridge, exactly on the white line. Go figure. Well, uh, Yehuda, I'm convinced. Yehuda Axel, do you have any uh, last questions for Thomas before we go to hands? Uh, I have one question, Thomas. I don't know. Uh, we don't know if it's true, but a certain Kremlin wants us to think it's true. Um, 70,000 of the best trained warriors in the world in choreography with uh, blue smoke and orange smoke. That's right, I'm talking about Cirque du Soleil, Belarus uh, contingent regiment. Um, let's just say they decide that they want to take a fancy little stroll down into Ukraine. Now, from the infantry side, from the land operations side, I can tell the audience that there's probably less favorable terrain in the north of Ukraine in terms of wetlands and marshes and lack of access to avenues of approach because the Ukrainians have uh, reserve demolition bridges and uh, created all sorts of things called kill zones, uh, which would greet any uninvited guests. So, but from a, a land operations perspective, um, it would be a very strange, uh, strange move if, if forces were to cross over from Belarus into Ukraine. But tell us what, what, well, so just some context. Ukrainian capabilities, fires capabilities today are, are far different than they were seven months ago. Considering what they are today, what could we expect from the world of artillery um, in in terms of supporting uh, Ukrainian defense along that that say, that front with with Belarus? So, how, what's different today than seven months ago, briefly? And then today, what could we see the Ukrainians bringing to bear on some hapless, um, unfortunate group of Russians and Belarusian uh, Cirque du Soleil members or uh, coming down the, the line there into Ukraine. Okay, let's divide these questions into three parts. Um, before the Russian attack on Ukraine, uh, December, January, February, the Americans released a ton of information about the Russian plans and the Russian intentions and where the Russian troops would go and so on. We haven't seen anything like that right now from Belarus. Now, if the Americans manage to pierce the Russian military so well that they know every little detail, one of the most mind-boggling details, down south in Ukraine, there's a Lehman where the, where the Americans knew that the Russians want to put down special forces. And it's like, this was like a minor incursion of like 50, 60 Russian special forces and the Ukrainians got from the Americans the tip. Just put some infantry there and when the Russians approach, shoot them up. So the Americans knew each little detail of the Russian plan. So it was like Kostomel Airport near Kiev. The Russians will land, get ready and put some special forces nearby to strike the Russians. So Belarus, we have heard nothing. The thing is, the Belarus milita Belarusian military is the second worst in Europe. 
Moldova is likely the worst because it's the poorest country in Europe and they really don't have any money. But Belarus is the second worst military in Europe for sure. And it's corrupt, it's incompetent, and most of the people in the military hate the dictator. Lukashenko, there was an uprising two years ago against him and only Putin's help kept him in power. So to think that the Americans haven't penetrated completely and fully the Belarusian military and know every little bit of information what is going on inside there, I doubt that. The Americans have definitely pierced it. And I assume the Polish and the Ukrainians will have pierced the complete structure of the military and secret service in Belarus. None of these countries seem to be in panic at the moment of a Belarus attack. So none of them has told their citizens to evacuate. So is there a chance that the Belarusians attack? Yes. But if they did now, then they kept it secret from all their officers. And that means, like with the Russian invasion in February, the officers are told, tomorrow morning you attack. And the, the military had no idea what to do, where to go, what the plan was. So Belarus, yes, it can attack, but it doesn't look like that. If it attacks, this is a densely forested area full of rivers and swamps. So the poor Belarusian really shittily armed, very badly trained, absolutely not motivated soldiers have to drive down roads with forests to the left, forests to the right, swarming with Ukrainian troops that have combat experience and are giddy to kill Russians or whoever helps them. The Russians tried that strategy when they invaded Finland in 1940. Let's just send a division down a road in the forest. It's gonna be fine. Not a problem. Every and everybody died. The Finnish just shot the first 20 Russians and shot the last 20 Russians and then spent the next 20 days, uh, two days, shooting out of the forest at the Russians with guns, artillery, machine guns, there were mines left and right, and everybody died. Whole Russian divisions ceased to exist. So if Putin attacks now, some Belarusian soldiers might survive because, you know, it's not yet winter and they can maybe run back to Belarus. If he attacks in winter, entire Belarusian, uh, Belarusian brigades are going to cease to exist. The Ukrainians have a much better artillery. The Ukrainians had seven months to prepare. The Ukrainians know exactly where's the ideal point for an ambush, which bridge to blow up, where to lay mines, where to put a machine gun, where to place the mortars, where to place their artillery, and wait for these poor, poor Belarusian soldiers to come in. There's HIMARS. There is a M77. The Ukrainians probably have the best artillery down in the south, but there's enough artillery and enough HIMARS around to give the Belarusian dance troupe that dances to music on their military bases now a welcome that will be very short, very fiery, and very final. So it's a complete stupidity if 
Putin and Lukashenko think they can do that. So far, America obviously hasn't seen Lukashenko being in on it, because if that would happen that the Americans see Lukashenko being ready to go in, they would evacuate the American embassy from Kiev to Lviv to get it out of the way of a possible attack. Um, so far, American, British, Polish, German, Italian, French embassies are all staying in Kiev, so it's pretty safe for now. And if that happens, the Russian military at its best and strongest, which we know is, yeah, let's, let's, let's say it was strong when it attacked Ukraine in February, couldn't take Kiev. When the Ukrainians didn't have modern weapons, weren't prepared, hadn't raised a billion troops. And the Russians got bogged down, were shot up, and had to retreat. And now, the second worst military with some mobilized Russian men who are untrained, uh, have no equipment, don't want to be there with Belarus troops that have no equipment, are untrained, don't want to be there, are being sent down roads which basically are a one-way street to death. I'm looking forward to that because this is going to be the biggest massacre we will see in this century. And it's going to teach a lot of lessons to military planners in the world, like never do what the Russians already did in 1940 and again and again did, you know. And will Belarus do it? I doubt it. But if it does it, it's going to be just mind-boggling how quickly this will over and how many Belarus, Belarusian young men will die. And the reason why I say it, Thomas, is because obviously I don't think it will happen either, but a lot of people, especially our Vatnik friends and those who are prone to Kremlin propaganda. But glorious nation Kazakhstan removed their embassy and Tajikistan. And I mean, uh, the, at most, this was a request from Putin uh, to, to have those people move closer. I, mean, so I don't know why they do it, but it's not an indication that it's going to happen. Um, furthermore, I agree with you. I think perhaps Ukrainians wished it would. <laughs> it would be a very interesting victory uh, to see something collapse so quickly. All right. Thanks for that. I was. I kind of wanted to leave more on on the effect, the effects that the new fires that Ukrainians have would, you know, that just the mayhem it would cause on the Belarusian uh, advance if that happened. But I'll, I'll, I'll say that for later. CJ, over to you, and then whoever's next. Right, wait a second. Um, just a second. Please. Since you asked about the fires, um, proximity fuses on artillery shells work best against massed infantry. So I haven't seen many multi-option fuses or proximity fuses in Ukraine so far. I have seen that the French are sending a lot of them. So the French Caesars came with all the beautiful fuses the French army has multi-options, proximity, time, everything, and delay and so on. That's what I was um, getting at. Yeah. So basically, if that you have, a, let's assume the Belarusian military comes in. You have a two-mile, three-mile convoy in a dense forest that is stuck and doesn't move back or forth because there's Ukrainians to the front, Ukrainians to the left, Ukrainians to the right, and the back of the Convoy is under constant fire. And now the Ukrainians use like two M77 and um, American M77 to start to hit this 
two-mile-long convoy with shells, proximity shells. So basically, every minute, two, three, four shells come down exactly on the road because there's beautiful precision, precision with American weapons. The proximity fuses have a radar. They recognize how far from the ground they are. They detonate and um, the shrapnel flies out in a circular uh, motion from the warhead, shredding and killing everything for a 100 meter for sure. So basically, two M77 with proximity fuses can work down that convoy in a few hours. Just hit it from the front to the back with proximity fuses, and the Russians lying on the ground, being in a truck, nothing will save them. The Russian infantry fighting vehicles are so thin-skinned, the shrapnel will just go through and kill whoever is inside. The tanks will survive, but you know, there's a then there are tanks stuck between all kinds of dead bodies and burning vehicles. <sighs> this is kind of like the highway of death when the Americans in hit the retreating Iraqis who were stuck on one highway and couldn't move back and forth after the uh, liberation of Kuwait. The Americans used uh, attackers with cluster munitions and they used artillery and they used fighter jets and B-52 bombers. And no one knows how many Iraqis died, but it was like a kilometer long, just one destroyed vehicle and corpse after another. And that's what awaits Belarusian troops that do not surrender, that do not run away, and that are stuck on these roads. And I guarantee you, Ukraine had seven months to train this and plan this. And the Ukrainian troops that are still up there in Rivne Oblast and Volin Oblast and Zhitomir Oblast and those guys from Lviv and Ternopil, they all hate the Russians. This is the Ukraine that hates Russia most. They are giddy. Come on, bring, come on, bring us some Russians. We have the guns. We have the will. They are giddy to see some Russians do something really stupid. And the reason, Thomas, the reason why I say it is, is simply because there are people that are wondering, well, they, they once jumped down from Belarus before. They could do it again. No, it's a very different this time. Number one, Ukrainians are all oriented facing that direction. Number two, they've got all of their, you know, their defensive positions sorted out. And number three, which is, was the fires and, and the types of fires that they can bring down, they're not going to make it a kilometer into Ukraine before this uh, kicks off. Yep. I think they get a little bit further in Ukraine because basically the Ukrainians will let them come into the trap, like bring a little bit more. We have space in the trap. Come on, bring another thousand. Yes, yes, not a thousand. Now the trap is full. Now we close it and then they're going to smash them. So in that area to attack a prepared enemy is absolute madness. So yeah, Putin would love to do it. I don't think Lukashenko has lost completely his mind like Putin. So hopefully he's not going to do it. Yeah, no, just a good point because it's going to—it's one of these things that we we get. We're like the canary in the coal mine. We get a lot of the questions that come in like this, uh, and it's coming up quite a bit. You know, are they're going to do this? They're going to do that? I, I mean, I don't like to sound like a warmonger, but I'm I, I'm like you. I'm like, please do, please do, as you know. There's very little place for you to move, and uh, it'd be a bad day for you. All right, um, CJ, over to you, and then we're going to take some hands. 
Yeah, no, I think the last thing we'll say just to close up this topic is is when the initial invasion started from that axis, from Belarus, uh, Russia expended not only ballistic missiles, but also a ton of loitering munitions to hit every checkpoint and every garrison up to 20 to 30 kilometers in, right? And while the intelligence had been shared with the Ukrainians, you know, the average foot soldier perhaps in the border was not aware, you know, the hours before that it was about to kick off. And so that was part of the reason why Russia was successful in the interim. And now, of course, the situation is different, as everyone said. And the last thing I'll say on this is even if Russia were able to to man um, this front entirely themselves, right, which is pretty much a, a foregone conclusion considering how heavily they're relying on conscripts. Let's just say they were some veterans uh, with Russian gear, Russian training. This would take away from the logistics needed to keep up all the other fronts that are in such dire straits right now. So even if it was just a, a purely Russian effort and they were just using Belarus, it would go badly, uh, not just for that front, for all the reasons that Thomas uh, so laid out so well, but also because it would take away from just the unity of effort going on. So with that, uh, I want to go to Cajun first. He's a longtime listener, one of our favorites here, and uh, he missed your interview last week, and he's been waiting uh, almost an hour before you got here, Thomas. So please, Cajun, uh, take it away. Hey, thanks, CJ. Uh, Thomas, I, uh, I, listen, I got to listen to last week, but I was at a, a football game in New Orleans, Louisiana. I didn't want uh, to come on and uh, regale the space with uh, jazz music and all the craziness before a, a New Orleans football game. But uh, love your commentary. Really enjoy uh, your uh, um, Twitter feed. Read it every day. Um, I have a question for you in particular, uh, spurned by uh, a comment that you made last week, which was you had made the statement that the Ukrainian military strategy, part of their strategy is to an attempt to kill 100,000 Russian soldiers because they believe uh, if they kill 100,000 um, Russian soldiers that the uh, uh, Russian military will collapse. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, it's uh, and I've been kind of tracking on a on a parallel course the fact that uh, 25 years ago, approximately, uh, Russia had the lowest birth rate in the recorded history of Russia. So just at the time where Russia would need young men in a war, they are going to they have the shortest, the fewest number of young men. For this conflict, I would, so it, it leads credence to the idea that uh, Russia is uh, especially susceptible to casualties in young men at this time because they don't have as many as they normally would, which which uh, I think was quite interesting with what you said. To kind of reinforce that and follow along uh, with that thread, how do you interpret what makes Ukrainian, in particular, artillery? tactics seem to be so lethal to the Russians because they seem to have extremely high lethality and very low survival rate. The, uh, the difference between the, the delta between wounded and dead seems to be remarkably small. And some of that is due to, to Russian incompetence uh, and lack of, uh, of uh, medical care and support for their troops. But what is it about Ukrainian artillery tactics, in your opinion, that makes them so lethal? Thank you. Hello, and nice to meet you. And you're, I think you're missing the Saints game in New Orleans right now. <laughs> I, because... have, I don't have tickets this week, but I had tickets in person last week. 
one of my best friends is in New Orleans and he told me he can't listen in today because he is at the Saints game and that's that's more important for him. <laughs> so, uh, about Russian and the artillery tactics. Um, there's two factors here at play. If you use artillery and your enemy is very competent, you know, your artillery will not kill a lot of them. If your enemy is extremely incompetent, your artillery is having a buffet and it just can dig in and get its fill. And Russian units, there have been videos of Russian battalions marching complete battalions bunched up towards the front. And it's like, guys, it's like 400 guys walking in artillery range to the front and to me if you know ukraine artillerists that's the dream because you hit them with six shells and of those 400 half are dead and they're so bunched up so the ukrainians have the luck that the russians are just absolutely incompetent disastrous and the ukrainians use drones commercial off-the-shelf drones in masses to scout the whole battlefield for continuous um, Russian um, positions that they can hit. And the Russians really like, I mean, there's there was a video last week of the Russians basically having six Krat rocket launcher within the space of not even a swimming pool, like bunched up a meter between them and it was like out in the field and it's like so beautiful because if you're an artillerist and you spot that you know you cannot really miss and the ukrainians were like you know just to be sure they fired gmlrs rockets at it because to make sure that they kill all of them and this incompetence is just what helps the ukrainian artillery and the quick real-time uh battlefield intelligence by hundreds of drones so the russians can't hide and they hide very incompetently and the ukrainians just have this luck to have the russians as their enemy there were some russian um, heavy self-propelled artillery systems driving down a road and the ukrainians were like okay they're gonna hide somewhere and the russians drove into some trees and since these are very heavy tracked vehicles they left a nice long line in the grass where they had ripped up all the grass while driving over it. So it was just for the Ukrainian drone operators. Very easy to spot because, look, there's a field and in this field, a tracked vehicle just passed. And this vehicle tracks and in those trees. Haha. <laughs> and the Ukrainians stuck those trees with rockets and... Then the trees exploded and the Russians had lost, I think, three or four of their precious self-propelled artillery systems. So artillery paired with real-time battlefield reconnaissance and intelligence and target acquisition, it was gives the Ukrainian this super good advantage. And the next thing that helps the Ukrainians is precision guided munitions like Excalibur because if a drone spots a Russian tank, the Ukrainians say, oh, this Russian tank is parked there. We can hit it with an Excalibur and it's going to come down and the Excalibur shell is going to hit the tank and it's going to blow up. And there's no risk that with 
um, with not guided shells like Excalibur, you have to fire a shell. That shell likely will not hit. It will come down near the tank. Then you have to, you know, adjust your aim with the cannon, with the howitzer to try to hit the tank. But between the first shell and the next coming in and the one that will hit the tank coming in, some Russian could jump in the tank and drive it away. With precision guided munition like Excalibur, the Russian tank gets hit with the first shell and is gone. There's a video that was out there of, um, I think, also self-propelled Russian artillery. And an Excalibur came down and blew up the first um, self-propelled artillery system. And some Russian immediately ran to the second, jumped in and drove it away. So at least the Ukrainians had destroyed one. With classic artillery, without guided munitions, both might have gone away. And so the Ukrainians destroyed 50% of the Russian artillery that was there. For any military that is learning from Ukraine, the lessons you take from this are, you need a lot of artillery. Everything should have guided projectiles. You should have projectiles to kill infantry, so classic projectiles with proximity fuses. You should have some shells with point detonating fuses to basically blow around trenches and detonate enemy fortifications. You need precision guided munitions to hit tanks with the first shot or command posts or to hit ammunition stacks with the first shot. That's what you need in artillery and you need an immense amount of drones for real-time battlefield surveillance. Surveillance, so, so you get the word. And you need an immense amount of counter-drone systems to prevent the enemy from actually observing you. So in the future, I think artillery batteries will be two guns or two uh, rocket launchers with precision-guided munitions and normal munition, uh, ammunition tied in a network that gives them real-time battlefield information to see the enemy and hit it with a lot, a lot of air defense systems like Gepard or something with lasers or something with uh, pulse weapons or something with cheap missiles to take down whatever drone the enemy sends to spot you and surveil you. Thank you, Thomas. So it was a uh, uh, really appreciate the answer. I'm going to circle down to uh, listener. And no, a great answer. You know, one things, a couple things we saw this week in this related to this question, of course, are perhaps even a, a Mike 31 Alpha One. You know, a pretty standard unitary gimblers coming down right next to a trench, probably not hitting a trench, but hitting some artillery piece or vehicle or some other key um, Russian weapon system. And, and of course, the examples that. Thomas laid out. I mean, just you can answer this pretty simply, I think, Thomas. How bad is it for the Russians if their individual artillery pieces are being targeted by gimblers? And, and what does it say about the, the Russian dispersion in terms of how close they're putting their soldiers to their artillery? Um, I mean, if you start losing your artillery systems, your self-propelled howitzers and your heavy rocket launchers, 
in masses, like the Russians are losing, I think, every day now, five to ten systems. Uh, your military on the on the look. If I am an officer, I care the least about killing infantry because infantry is easy to kill, just a machine gun, and it's done. What I care most is about to hit the enemy's heavy equipment and his logistics. No fuel, the tanks won't drive. No ammo, because I hit the logistics, the artillery won't shoot. This is what the Ukrainians did already. Um, if I hit the radars, all the air defense systems go blind. So you work through a, a target list, and the Ukrainians did that. They hit Russian ammunition depots. They hit Russian fuel depots. Then they started to hit bridges. Everything to hamper and destroy Russian logistics. And then with the arrival of the American Harbor missiles, the Ukrainians started to hit Russian radar sites and jamming stations, opening basically the whole front to Ukrainian um, airstrikes on the front and uh, also missile strikes and whatever they want. At this stage, the Russians have nothing what they can defend against these missile strikes and against the drones. Because how do you fight the drones with air defense systems, but all your radars are destroyed? So the harms opened the sky for the Ukrainian drones that now spot all the Russian um, vehicles, like the tanks and the self-propelled artillery and the Uragan and the Smerch. The drones can fly 30 kilometers over Russian territory, Russian-occupied territory, and the Russians have nothing to shoot them down. Harm opened the way for the Ukrainian battlefield surveillance. Now, if you don't have enough fuel, right, you can't drive your uh, self-propelled artillery and your tanks around like crazy. You don't have enough fuel. You have to park them, hide them somewhere, until you need them again, you have to conserve fuel. That means your artillery is standing around for hours, and it can be spotted by the drones. Then the drones hit them. How to defend against Ukrainian artillery fire? Well, you fire back at the Ukrainians and try to destroy Ukrainian artillery. But you don't have ammo. The Ukrainians destroyed your ammo. So how do you fire back when you have not enough ammo? to hit the Ukrainians, and you don't have precision-guided munitions. If you hit them back, you need 20 shells. And of those 20, maybe one comes down close enough to the Ukrainian artillery to destroy it. But you don't have 20 shells anymore because your logistics are fucked. And, where do you, and how do you know where the Ukrainian artillery is? Well, you use drones. But you know the Russians, if they send drones into Ukrainian territory, they get shot down. The Ukrainians got Gepard, the Ukrainians got other air defense systems, and the Russians cannot fly drones deep into Ukrainian territory now. The Russians are blind. So the Russians still have counter-battery radar. They can switch that on to see where the Ukrainian artillery positions are. The moment they switch their radars on, a Harvin missile comes in and destroys the Russian radar. So the Russians are blind. They don't have the fuel to drive around their vehicles to keep them safe. They don't have the ammo to fire back at the Ukrainians. They don't see the Ukrainians because the drones get shot down and their counter-battery radars have been destroyed. 
And Ukrainians fly drones like crazy over the Russians, looking for beautiful targets that are static and waiting there to be hit by Excalibur. Ukrainians need 10,000 more Excalibur because they're going to hit every single tank from a distance. And if you're a Russian tank driver, your first instinct will be to stay as far away from your tank because every moment something can come down and hit it exactly and blow it up. Um, the Russians have lost this war. Technology-wise, they're so backwards and they're so out of options. Uh, Putin is just dragging it out. He's dragging it out and he's trying to compensate for having lost everything by bodies. And as you said, the Russians don't even have enough men to send to the front because they have such low birth rates. So Putin is now sending 40, 50-year-old guys untrained, unfit, not really willing, maybe alcoholic, they should basically overrun the Ukrainians and it's going to be a massacre. And, well, if the Russians don't rise up, that's what they want. And uh, if you guys want to stick around for after the war, I'm sure Thomas and I will, will host a space where we argue about self-propelled versus towed because this is one of the key problems of uh, self-propelled systems. And I'm saying it jokingly, of course, we, we both understand, hopefully, that the situation and all the aid that Ukraine needs. But in order for Russia and you know Ukraine, to a lesser extent, to fire their artillery pieces, they need to have fuel to, to be able to actually shoot those fire missions. So it's even worse than uh, even Thomas said. And, and that is really important, especially in areas like Kherson, where, where supplies are so limited. Are you going to try and have fuel for your tanks to try and keep them moving and keep them alive? Or are you going to try and have them uh, get fuel towards the self-propelled guns, which you need them to shoot? So a bad situation overall. And with that, we got a lot of hands up. Thank everyone for your patience today. This is a, a giant space right now. Share, retweet. Let's get it even bigger. Uh, we love having Thomas here. So with that, we're going to go John, Colby, Doman, and Auntie. John, take it away. Thank you, CJ. And thank you for joining us once again, Thomas. Um, you, you made a very interesting comment regarding the Russians failing to jam uh, GPS for the past seven months. Um, I'm curious if you have any insight into whether or not GLONASS has been jammed either by Ukraine or perhaps with some uh, some NATO assistance, you know, Caliber, Iskander-M, KH-101, all of those have, um, or reported to have anyways, GLONASS-based guidance systems. And more interestingly, these uh, new Iranian short-range ballistic missiles, there's been uh, some consp uh, some considerable speculation that they have um, uh, side, uh, satellite guidance packages specifically that are GLONASS based. Um, so I'm curious if the if the same level of inaccuracy that we've observed from Russian standoff weapons could potentially be repeated with these uh, Iranian weapons that we would have not seen elsewhere. Um, as I said, there are definitely Russians listening in here, in here, and those Russians. We don't want to help any of them. So hello, Russian guys. I know that you're here because you screenshot my tweets since 2014 and sometimes come back with, after six years with deleted tweets from six years ago and ask me if I still have the same opinion. And I'm like, who screenshots something six years ago and comes back with the screenshots after six years? Obviously, it's the Russian intel, intel services. So we're not going to help you here. Can GLONASS be jammed? Yes, definitely. And is it jammed? Well, the Russians need to find out themselves. We're not going to help them. Try to fire some missiles and find out. 
because uh, you know this is something that will really damage Russia's prospects to hit targets in Ukraine and uh, telling them something even I don't really know the details but even small details you know we're not going to help you just fire and good luck let me uh, rephrase it because I, I think it's an important question still and I know Thomas uh, Russians hated your thread where you compared the Smirch with the HIMARS before Ukraine got them and they were very angry because they were certain their system was superior to the American one just on its face value what are what is just the big takeaway for GPS satellites versus GLONASS satellites in terms of how they affect missiles and how good they are Okay, there's three GPS codecs that come down. Um, one is for civilians. I think the name is CA. And it's a few meters, that is the precisions. And then there's PY, which is for the military. And it's much, much more precise. And then there's the M codec. And it's so secret, I have no idea what exact specifications of that are. I know it exists, and it's named M. That's it. Um, GLONASS, compared to that, if you look at GLONASS mobile phones and compare that with GPS phones, and then let's just run around the city, and then you compare, the GLONASS is always off by a lot. Um, GLONASS is, again, a Russian copy of something that the Americans have made, and the Russians made a worse copy. Um, yes, you can guide some missile with that to some target. Um, if you try to hit a tank, it's going to miss. If you try to hit, let's say, a huge factory, it's going to hit because the hack factory is so huge. Then you can definitely, uh, since the Russians have been trying to um, jam GPS for years, you can be sure there's ways to jam GLONASS. Is it jammed? We will not say. But the possibility is there, or even better, you know, you could spoof it. Basically, tell the Russian missile, you know what? The Russian missile flies to Kiev, and GLONASS is spoofed, and the Russian missile thinks it is now in Kiev, and it explodes, but actually it's some field. Or the missile is told through a spoofed GLONASS to fly to Belarus and explode there. Everything is possible. And the details of how this works and if it's being done I'm not going to share. I just tell you that there's vast possibilities because the Russians got their chips from Taiwan. And if you think that the Taiwanese didn't allow the CIA to look at those chips and redesign them before they went into the foundry to be made for the Russians, ah, you don't know what the CIA is up to in these days in this world. Well, I, I hopefully that answers your question, John. Do you have any follow-up? Y'all about knocked it out of the park. Thank you very much. Perfect. A lot of scary uh, things for Russians to look forward to there, and we, we love to keep them guessing. So with that, we'll go to Colby. Thanks, CJ. Thanks, Thomas, for joining us again. Uh, did you see the video of the strike on the substation in Belgorod? Yes, I saw it. Any thoughts about what that might have been? That is an interesting question because I'm not sure. It didn't look like a GMLRS. So I think the Ukrainians used one of their own missiles. I mean, they they have um, 
uh, how to say, the Ukrainians have their own missile systems. And I'm sure they can adapt them to strike Belgorod, which is not that far from Ukraine. It's like 30, 40 kilometers behind the, the front. Um, I don't think it was an American missile, but it was very strange because the sound that it made and the impact. Um, honestly, I from that video, I can't determine what it was. And I'm myself curious to figure out what that is. Yeah, we've all been uh, debating amongst ourselves as well, trying to figure it out, because based on what we know, it's subsonic, because you can hear it coming, so it's, it sh shouldn't be supersonic due to the sound. And it also came from the north uh, on a fairly horizontal tra trajectory. So in my mind, there's not a whole lot of things that could fit the bill, both being subsonic and then coming flying from that direction. It would have had to been potentially launched by aircraft, um, because I don't I don't see how else it's going to come in from that uh, direction on, and on that trajectory uh, to hit the target. Yep. So this is sometimes there are some systems that um, where even I, there was one strike on a Russian tank where the Russian tank was hit by something and it looked like a smart munition, but then something flew away from the tank like a drone. And that was in July, and I still haven't figured out what drone that was and what kind of ammunition it dropped on a tank. So there's a suspicion it might be the Phoenix Ghost. So the Phoenix Ghost might be a drone that drops um, explosive form penetrators on Russian, Russian tanks, but I don't know. So there's things where just the video quality, it's in. This in Belgorod is one of those things where you like can't really figure it out. Today I saw a video of a missile coming down, straight down, and it hit the target straight down. So it should be a GMLRS missile, but it was very slow and it seemed to have separated. So the rocket engine seemed to have separated from the warhead when it came down, which I wouldn't know which missile does that. So. Is it a bad video? Is it an artifact? Was there some clouds? Did we not see something? So I don't know what happened there. So but these videos, I keep them in a folder that try to figure it out. But sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my personal theory, not that anyone asked, of course, is that it definitely came in from a very low angle in that regard because you can hear it for almost three seconds continuously and you kind of see the the splash from that. So if Thomas's theory that there is, uh, well, Thomas and many other people's theory that there is a seed campaign in Belgrade and there is air defense systems being taken out, then perhaps the Ukrainian Air Force is more active there now than we than we first thought. But this would not be surprising considering the fact that within the first month, the Ukrainian Air Force was doing pretty daring raids into uh, Belgorod uh, via attack helicopters. So, you know, fighter jets is, is not that far off from there. So, Colby, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, I know we don't have anything definitive for you, but. Yeah, no, I just wanted to get his thoughts. Um, so it's, it's a mystery. All of us are going to have to uh, think about some more, I guess. Awesome. And with that, we will go to Doman the Nanty. Hi, Thomas. Um, I'm very sorry I had to miss your last appearance. I listened to all of it. I just couldn't speak shitty airport Wi-Fi. Um, 
I want to turn your attention a little bit to logistics, because earlier you were talking about logistics and how important they are. Um, you know, ammunition, fuel, things that are kind of useful if you want to actually wage war. Um, yesterday, two days ago, whenever it was, um, you posted a little video of Russians unloading a train in the middle of nowhere, somewhere around Henichensk, uh, somewhere south of Melitopol, 140 kilometers from the front lines. Um, I'll just leave it very open. Could you provide as much commentary as you uh, as you can come up with as to why they were unloading that far from the front lines? What does it mean that they're moving their stuff from Crimea when they can get barely anything into Crimea? Um, and anything else you can think of? Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, I saw the video of the train and. Basically, for those that didn't see the video, there was some guy drove by a train station in the middle of nowhere, just a little bit north of Crimea, and there were Russian soldiers unloading crates of ammunition and loading them on trucks. The reason the Russians have to unload their ammunition 140 kilometers from the front is that anywhere around 100 kilometers to the front, and they will get a high mares to send them fiery greetings and this ammunition will just blow up and cook off and everyone there will be dead. 140 kilometers is a safe distance from high Mars to unload. So basically the Russians can just transport the ammunition by train, which is the favorite Russian logistics vehicle, trains, because a train can transport thousands of tons. The Russians need to unload them 140 kilometers from the front and then truck the stuff to the front. And trucks are much, much less uh, capable to deliver a lot of ammunition because, you know, a truck can take to five, six tons. And if you have 50, and then you need 50 trucks to deliver the same amount that one train can deliver. And those 50 trucks need a lot of more fuel than the train. If the train is on electricity, you know, it doesn't take any fuel away from the troops. So every time Russia has to go further away from the front to unload, the logistics become so much more complicated. So for the Ukrainians, the best thing that they could get now would be extended range GMLRS rockets, because then they can strike 150, 160 kilometers into Russian-occupied territory, forcing the Russians to go back 200 kilometers with their logistics. And at that point, you know, the troops at the front, they need water, they need food, they need ammunition, they need fuel, and now comes winter. They need heating stuff. Oil, fuel, wood, they need an immense amount. Every day, I mean, it's like... If the Russians have in the south, let's say, 50,000, 60,000 troops, think about a city of 60,000 people. How much bakeries, how much uh, supermarkets are there? How many fuel stations? 60,000 people city, you know, how many fuel stations? And this is just a city. The tanks need a lot more fuel because a tank is 50 tons. And a civilian car in a 60,000 people city, he's not sleeping in a trench and needs a stove with wood. He sleeps in his house and has electricity. So it's much more complicated to supply 60,000 troops in the field than 60,000 people city. 
and the Russians don't have enough trucks and that's why they rely so much on trains and that's why every day the Kerch Bridge, the trains cannot pass. The Russians get more and more into trouble. And so the whole Russian system is based, we have trains and the trains can go 20 kilometers, 10 kilometers to the front where a lot of men unloaded by hand. And then HIMARS showed up. The moment HIMARS showed up, the Russian artillery fire, which was like 60 to 100,000 shells a day, just dropped down to a few thousand a day. Because the Russians just had to go 140 kilometers from the front to unload. And the Russians lost 2,000 trucks. If you know Oryx, who counts all the visually confirmed Russian losses, he is up to 1,800, 1,900 visually confirmed Russian logistics trucks. Okay, the Italian army has around 2,000 logistics trucks, and that's an army with 100,000 men. So the Russians basically lost an entire full Italian army of logistic vehicles. And they don't get them anywhere around. So they can find maybe in Siberia some trucks that have been there in the Siberia in some parking lot from the military for 20 years. But it's never helping them. And then you have to transport it over the Dnieper to Kershon, where the bridges are out. So Ukraine is striking at Russian logistics. And what really would help Ukraine now, the U.S. is producing some extended-range GMLRS rockets. It's a low-rate initial production run to just, you know, test the production and see how it goes and see any mm, improvements you can make in production before you go to full-rate production. But even those 120 ER GMLRS, if they go to Ukraine now, if just 20 go to Ukraine now, it's going to cause the Russians such massive problems because two of these rockets hitting that train in that station and the Russians have to move all their um, logistics not 100 kilometers back. And the Russians are moving out their ammunition from Crimea to the south because there's no ammunition coming in from Russia right now. Why? The Russians said the rail bridge in Kherson is not damaged and trains can pass. If you have a passenger train, the engine is a, a few tons. And then the wagons, where the people sit, a person weighs 60 to 100 kilo. You have 100 people in there. 100 people by 100 kilo, let's say it's 10 tons, okay? So there's 10 tons in a huge... No, wait. Can a hundred people fit in a train wagon? Let's assume there's a hundred people in a wagon passenger train. Okay? And this is a huge, I mean, this is the wagons to fit a hundred people is how much? 20 meters something? 10, 20 meters? So that's the weight, 10 tons plus the wagon, let's say 20 tons dispersed on 20 meters. It's a ton per meter. Then you have a tank. If you look at Russian tank trains, the tank is 50, 60 tons, and a 10 meter. So you have six tons, a lot more weight. So when the Russians says, say the Kerch Bridge is perfectly fine and we can send trains over, yes, passenger trains. Try to send over tanks. Try to send over fuel tanks, you know, with all the fuel that is like 60 tons of fuel. The bridge is not going to take it, not going to hold it. So the Russians have no way to re 
to send logistics to Crimea, and that's why they're plundering whatever stocks they have left in Crimea to keep the front in Kherson and in Militopol supplied. Again, the Russians are out of options and are just trying everything to prolong the war in the hope that some miracle happens. But, you know, miracles don't happen. It's just the Russians, any Russian general with some brain and conscience would see that the war is over and they have lost it. But, you know, so far, no Russian general is brave enough to kill Putin and end this complete madness. But if enough Russian soldiers die, hopefully some Russian general is like enough is enough and ends it. So that's what I think about the logistics. There you go, Doman. Is that a uh, all you could ever hope for? There. It's about ninety-nine percent. I'll, I'll posit one little thing. Um, they haven't done this before, really, have they? Right, the offloading hundred forty kilometers away. I think there's a decision they've had to have made. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe they've been offloading hundred forty kilometers away for a long time. By judging, but. But judging by all of the things that went up in flames at Melitopol and Tokmak over the past week, I don't think they were doing this for a long time already. So it makes me think that they've realized they have to be actually careful with their stuff and really make sure to keep it out of range of the HIMARS. One thing that changed, initially the Russians went to 10, 20 kilometers board for the front and unloaded there. And they got hit by HIMARS. And now the Ukrainians, thanks to harm, to harm, they have destroyed all the Russian air defenses in the south. So at first, the Ukrainians put up a drone like a TB2 by Raktar over Ukrainian territory, safe from Russian air defenses, and looked with a camera into the Russian-occupied areas. They spotted a train at Dokmak and struck it. But they didn't fly drones into Russian-occupied areas because the drones would have been lost. Thanks to harm, now the Ukrainians can fly a drone over Militopol and the Russians won't be able to shoot it down. They won't even see it because there's no radar left that the Russians have. So now even the trains that the Ukrainians didn't see earlier because they were too far behind the front, now the Ukrainians see them. And the Ukrainians have now enough HIMARS and M270 that they don't have to first drive from Zaporozhia down or from Krivirok to Zaporozhia with a HIMARS to, to, to fire the missile. There's a HIMARS everywhere now. So basically, the drone says, oh, I spotted a train at Melitopol. It just pulled in and it's full of ammo. Four minutes later, the HIMARS crew pushes a button and the missile flies away. Uh, again, harm missiles destroying Russian raiders. It's one of the biggest game changers. And the lesson here is that um, searching and destroying enemy air defenses is a key, key factor to win a war. Not because your air force flies into the enemy areas. No, but it opens the air for your drones to look at every piece of battlefield and behind the battlefield to find Every single Russian command post, signal post, radar, ammunition, everything. Yeah, I, I can't stress enough. I think people were sort of shocked as I was when we heard that uh, U.S. had given harms missiles, considering the fact that it wasn't previously announced, setting a precedent that perhaps other systems have arrived to the country 
and have not been announced. So with that, we'll, we'll go to our favorite Finn, and um, he was two two votes short on joining NATO and reenlisting himself. Antti, how's it going? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I'm uh, doing great, and uh, it's always uh, excellent to uh, hear uh, Thomas uh, speaking of these um, matters of common interest. And uh, my my little uh, question for you this time, Thomas, is uh, how would you uh, characterize the uh, the Russian uh, fortification efforts near Swatove? So I, my microphone is on, I hope, because it for just yes, was, yes. Okay, it was flickering for a second there. Okay, so people haven't seen it. The Russians are digging a trench, an anti-tank um, trench near Swatovia, and they're putting up hedgehogs behind there, which just they are concrete blocks that they put on the earth. And then the Russians a bit further behind are digging uh, infantry trenches. So basically, this is a defensive line completely useless. Um, it's going to, there's the different kinds of defensive stuff. You know, you can delay an enemy, you can channel him, you can force him back. This is, what does it take to um, basically um, get rid of this defensive line? Yes, the, the Russians will have to place a ton of mines in front of it. So that the Ukrainian sappers would have to come in and clean out the mines. Then some tanks with blades can just fill in the trench. And then since the hedgehogs, these concrete blocks, hedgehogs, hedgehog, concrete blocks are not um, tied down in any way to the ground, the Ukrainians can just push them aside with a tank and move on. But the Russians are building this front this line, I think north of Svatoya or south of Svatoya, I don't remember. And the Ukrainians will just go around to the north or the south. So this is a complete ridiculous exercise in futility by someone who is a moron. Basically, they're calling it the Putin line. And are like, oh, yeah, this is going to stop the Ukrainians. The French built the Magnol line and the border with Germany in 1930s. And the Germans were like, just, yes, you know what? To the north is Luxembourg. We just moved to Luxembourg and to Belgium. That's it. The French were all stuck on their, on their fortificated, on their line with all the fortifications. And the Germans moved just in the north where there was nothing except for the British Expeditionary Corps, which basically had to retreat to Dunkirk because it was like faced with the entire German army. So the Ukrainians are like, oh, you're making a defensive line. Cool. We're just moving around to the north. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, cool, Russians. You're wasting fuel. You're wasting concrete stuff on uh, that. You, you're putting your troops to dig trenches. Have you thought that you can go around that? Well, not, it's worse than that, Thomas, because the obstacles aren't covered by fire. Most like they don't have enough troops to cover all those obstacles. And they're not even very substantial obstacles. You get dozers that push the concrete blocks away should you really want to go through. So it's really, it's as you said, it's an exercise in futility. I'm not sure why. Maybe they want to make their troops do more work for no reason. But there's so many reasons why that's just a bad idea. 
I guess some field manual from the Soviet times says to do this and some officers like, you know, if I do it exactly as the field manual says, Putin can't punish me. So he's doing it, even though he knows himself, it's just stupid. Uh, not covered by fire for the people that don't know it. If you have an obstacle, you need to cover it with machine guns and troops. So to make the enemy sappers that come in and try to clean the mines, basically die. And just an example, everyone has seen Saving Private Ryan, I assume, right? Saving Private Ryan, the opening scene on the beach in Normandy, that is basically what happens if you have obstacles that are covered by fire. You come in and you get stuck on the beach because there's obstacles that block your way out and the enemy shooting with machine guns at you. So if the Russians don't have the combination of infantry, machine gun posts, and obstacles. Um, let's just assume for a second, if the Americans would have landed in Normandy on that beach and there were no obstacles, they could have just very quickly walked up to the Germans and killed them and taken the beach. On the other hand, if there were obstacles and no, American, uh, no German infantry in Normandy beach, the Americans would have come on the beach, moved the obstacles aside, there's no Germans, and they could have walked up too. So if, as Yehuda says, if the Russians are building an obstacle defensive line, which isn't covered by infantry and machine guns and so on and mortars, it's, 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 it's Benny Hill level. It's a Benny Hill level of stupidity. It's mean like it's Mr. Bean level of incompetence. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's typical for the Russians. So we are surprised and we as Western military personnel are like, what the hell? But uh, actually, it's the Russians. I think that's that's what they have been taught, and that's what they're gonna do. I mean, I'm, when Yehuda said that they don't cover it with fire, I'm like, okay, every second wasted on this is stupid. Then, but you know, let the Russians do it if they think that this will help them. Please go on. Quick question in between. Uh, you highlighted earlier on that the destruction of the Russian forces and the Helslon uh, Oblast is upcoming, given the fact that they are now fixed, located, have a hard time crossing back. Um, the M31A1 munitions have one fuse which allows an air burst. I haven't seen much um, in, in terms of use in, say, large theater areas thus far. A couple of examples exist. Wouldn't that be exactly the kind of, sorry to say so, meat grinding ammunition required in order to make sure that you have lots and lots of troops actually simply surrender? Yes, that is a really good ammunition to kill lots and lots of people very quickly and efficiently. And actually very, very brutally, because if you see the tests from the American Lockheed Martin videos, uh, they put up some mannequins and had basically um, this M30A1 missile come down and see what happens to the mannequins. Um, there were no mannequins left. Basically, it was completely shredded and uh, full of holes and ripped apart and burned. And so, yeah, it's a very efficient, but also very horrible sight that these missiles do. So it's a psychological weapon also. Like in earlier time, the cluster munitions that the Americans used on the Iraqis were a psychological weapon because basically when those came down, that you had a minute to pray and then 90% were dead and 10% were lucky and 
the praying had helped. Um, I haven't seen many of those missiles in Ukraine yet. I saw two crates. And I think one of the reasons that there's so few in Ukraine now is that the American military, as far as I know, ordered very few of them compared to the rockets, the HIMARS rockets with the unitary warhead to destroy targets like bases and logistics centers or command posts. Um, the UK was quoted as delivering a lot of this. Yes, the UK has them. And the thing is that um, maybe the Ukrainians keep them, you know, because when the Russians retreat, right, they will clog the roads. And if you use then this M30 missiles on the fleeing Russians, you get a lot, a lot more than if you hit them in the trenches or while on the front, because then they're spread out and in the trenches that zigzag, you might not hit all of them and some will get lucky. But if the Russians flee on roads, you can um, churn them up, churn them up really, really badly with those missiles. Uh, we have no idea how many the Americans have delivered, so we are guessing here. And I, I, as a battlefield commander, would keep those missiles for Russian maintenance depots or logistic points behind the front, you know, because then you can nicely spread it out and destroy all the maintenance equipment or the logistic equipment like kitchen or uh, fuel, uh, fuel pumps or maintenance cranes and so on. And I would keep those missiles in store for fleeing Russian formations that are fleeing because then you have them bunched up and in large numbers. So yeah, but it's so when they're bunched up. When they're, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Thomas, but if and when they were to be funneled towards yep. Kahoka, the dam, bunched up there, that's yes. that's the moment when you uh, actually utilize this. Yes, I would then smite them with every missile of this type that I can find. Because imagine there's 20,000 Russians trying to get over this dam. That's a traffic jam. And at some points, the Russians will abandon their vehicles and try to cross on foot. And if then you have like, let's say, 30 of those missiles rain down, 30 of those missiles are like uh, something like 5 million, 5.5 million of shrapnel pieces. I mean, there's like 20,000 Russians and there's 5 million, 5.5 million of shrapnel raining down on them with this speed to Mach 2 and burning hot and sharp like a knife. Uh, at that point of those 20,000 Russians, very few will make it over that bridge alive. So, um, so again, for the Russians, the soldiers, the best course of action is to surrender right now. The smart ones surrender and all the idiots stay in their trenches and wait until they're killed. And, you know, if they're not smart enough to, to understand that, then bad luck. 100%. Let's try to go through, through some hands. We've had a few hands up for a bit. Uh, uh, let's go Meyer Flask, Mr. Meyer Flask. Erlen, go ahead. Buonasera, Thomas. Uh, thank you very much for amazing analysis. Um, and my question is uh, as following. We, we now determined that uh, the Ukrainian 
the Ukrainians have destroyed the Russian logistics or at least reduced their capacity to uh, way worse uh, than what it was. Uh, a lot of their best or best so-called fighters have been killed or wounded and sent back to Russia in body bags or without limbs. Um, and uh, a lot of their best equipment has been uh, destroyed as uh, the most modern, at least. Uh, and now they're backfilling the lines with untrained soldiers and with really bad, badly maintained old equipment from the early days of the Cold War. Um, how do you see this playing out now as the winter is coming down in and uh, everything is just going to be a m misery for everyone in those trenches? So the Russians are mobilizing those men and they're actually training them a little bit. I think they understood that they cannot just send them there because the first ones, it seems, they arrived on the front, were given the gun and were given a little booklet how to use their guns and then sent in the front trenches and they weren't even able to get their ammo out of the boxes because it wasn't in those booklets they got. So the Russians are now a little bit training their um, troops, right? Uh, if the Russians sent those in, it's basically just manpower. And with equipment that is completely outdated and useless. Because, I mean, for a T-90 tank, you need a javelin or you need an analog. A T-62 from the 60s, I mean, a Klitschko could punch a hole in it. I mean, there's such shitty tanks. I mean, a Klitschko goes up and punches a hole or any 40-year-old NATO anti-tank weapon. Uh, so Putin is basically trying to do what the Tsar was trying to do in the First World War. Throw as many bodies at the enemy as possible. The first 10,000 to absorb the enemy machine gun ammunition and then when the enemy is out of the machine gun ammunition sent in another 5,000 that absorbed all the bullets from the rifles and then sent in another 5,000 and hope that the enemy is out of ammunition and those 5,000 will take the trench. That's what's the military strategy of the Tsar and you, we, we know that was really successful and led to Russia being a kingdom, a tsardom, until this day, because the tsar was so beloved for this strategy. And Putin is now doing the same. And uh, the young men have fled Russia, and the alcoholics and the overweight and the old are being told, it's up to you now to be these kind of men that absorb the yeah, Ukrainian bullets. If you watch the movie Stalingrad, that the um, French director, what was his name? Jean-Jacques Anodit, which you would law in the opening scene, basically, the Russian commissar is, you are going to attack. We don't have enough guns. So each one of you grabs with the guys with no gun, grab the coat of a guy with a gun and run behind him. And when the guy with the gun is killed, you grab his rifle and you go on. Uh, this is basically the Russian strategy for centuries. and. Russia has 140 million inhabitants, so Putin is like, there's a lot of overweight men I can send to die. 
And it di really didn't work because in World War One the Russians had the highest number of casualties thanks to this strategy, and it didn't work. In World War Two, the Russians had the highest number of casualties, like 13 million soldiers, twice as many dead as the Germans, and it didn't work. The difference was in World War Two, the Russians got the heavy equipment from the Americans. The Russians don't want to talk about it. But Lend-Lease was what made the Russians able to win their front in World War II. Because throwing bodies at the Germans, like the Tsar in 1915, 16, 17, had no success. The moment the American Lend-Lease came in, the Russian casualties were going down like crazy because suddenly the Russians were like, we don't have to throw bodies at the uh, Germans. We can fire grab missiles and artillery and then send tanks. Um, you can, there's a graph, I did a graph once where you see how the Russian casualties suddenly go down the moment American land lease equipment comes in. And right now the land lease is on the Ukrainian side. So the Russians are back to doing what the Tsar did. Throwing bodies at the front with one difference. The Germans were equally low on heavy weapons and ammunition in World War I as the Tsar was. Right now, the Ukrainians are flush with ammo and equipment and stuff, and they have 50 countries providing them with weapons and ammunition. So Putin is using the strategy of the Tsar to go up basically against a country with a motivated well-trained military that is being supported with ammunition and equipment by 50 countries in the world. And naturally, the 50 countries who are economically and technologically most advanced. So let's put it this way. I have seen the Ukrainians get the newest Italian military battle rifle. It's so new that Italian units haven't gotten it yet. It has been shipped directly from the factory to Ukraine with laser sights and everything. So 10 overrate uh, Russians coming out of the trench against one uh, Ukrainian with that rifle. It, the rifle has a perfect sight. He will not, the Ukrainian will not miss. The rifle shoots further and faster than the Russian Kalashnikovs with a better aim because it's a precision engineered barrel, not this Russian junk barrels of the Kalashnikovs. And the Russian bulletproof vests aren't bulletproof. They're just pieces of metal that should pretend or give the soldiers the feeling they're protected. It's just junk. These are metal plates and on impact they will splinter and they will cause extreme internal injuries. So this is junk that will even that will make wounds that the Russian troops receive worse. So Putin is throwing, let's say, 10 Russian guys that are overweight and have to basically slow walk to the Ukrainian positions because they're overweight and old and untrained against a Ukrainian guy with a modern battle rifle and maybe even night vision. And the Ukrainian will kill all the 10 Russians with 10 bullets. So the whole concept of Putin, you know, I will throw bodies at the Ukrainians in hope that they run out of ammunition or that they run out of HIMARS is not 
the United States production run of uh, HIMARS rockets is 12,000 a year. It can go up to 15 to 18,000, what I heard. So that means that missile, if each of those missiles just kills 10 Russians, we are down by 180,000 Russians already. So Putin can't, in no, he can send a million Russians and it would not change anything. The only thing that if Putin sends that many men to Ukraine, what changes is that the Russian logistic core can't support them even less than now. Now they support 20,000 men in Kershaw and these guys in Kershaw starve and freeze, have nothing to drink, sleep in trenches and are basically starving. If Putin sends another 30,000 men there that are overweight and uh, untrained, the Russian logistic corps has to support 50,000 men there. The only thing that will happen, they will starve even more. Again, this war is over. It's over since March and uh, every general knows it. They just don't want to admit it, the Russian generals, because they're out afraid of Putin. And whatever Putin... Sorry? No, yeah, I agree. Yes. And whatever Putin throws now at the Ukrainians is just going to get killed. And yeah, Raytheon is like, and Lockheed Martin are like, please, Mr. Putin, send more Russian men because we can sell another 10,000 missiles. That's the only thing. Putin sends bodies, Raytheon's profits go up. That's the only correlation we see here because the Russians won't even get to the Ukrainian trenches, most of them. They will die on the way. Yeah. Let's go to Leonard. He's had his hand up for a long time, too. Then we're going to go to Constantine. Go ahead, Leonard. Uh, thank you, Yehuda. And uh, thank you, Thomas. Uh, you've, you've given us an exceptionally uh, fine presentation and, and look at uh, and sharing with us the fruits of your work. Uh, just outstanding. But I have a question for you, Thomas, that might be a bit of a nerdy question, uh, but it, and it relates to the uh, your assessment as to uh, how important the what we've seen in terms of the adaptation and the the uh, honing, if you will, the fine tuning of some of the Western uh, weapon systems that Ukraine has now uh, had an opportunity to apply their ingenuity to and ad- adaptability to the battle space and show us the remarkable skills uh, in, in, uh, from everything from uh, from EW. Uh, on to right on down the line, and you specifically mentioned things like uh, uh, attack them. So, in other words, they they may be showing entire new horizons as far as the capability of some of these weapons. So, my question is this: uh, simply, just how how important a say an unintended consequence do you think this is from the Russians launching launching this uh, this entire misbegotten war? How important do you think it is now that the revelations it's giving, not just the Russians, but the whole world uh, and some of the other uh, players on the sidelines, uh, uh, displaying the capacities and the capabilities of these new weapon systems? Uh, it seems to me this might be more significant than even the Iraq one or two. Uh, anything? What do you think of that, Thomas? Thanks. First key thing here. America isn't giving Ukraine its most modern stuff. This is basically America cleaning out its war stocks to help Ukraine, and that's already enough to destroy Russia. Because the best things the United States has is its Air Force, and so far we haven't seen any of that. 
And if Ukraine should get fighter jets, it would be F-16. But these are way less capable than F-22 or F-35. So you, um, all the weapons America has given to Ukraine, their capabilities have been known to military officers pretty well for the last 20 years. Because every NATO military basically gets continuously uh, information from the, not just the American military, but also from American weapon producers of what American weapons can do. And so basically European countries, when they have some money, which they all didn't have for the last 20 years, they bought American kit and with that comes knowledge. So, um, when there was the announcement that HIMARS is going to Ukraine, I did some threats saying that this is going to change a lot because HIMARS, the precision and the ability to strike command posts, uh, logistic points and so on of the Russians will just change the war. And I think every European and American artillery officer knew it too. Except there's some clown who was a former American military officer who was interviewed by the DC examiner, and he was like getting his statics, statistics from Wikipedia, and he didn't know it. But everyone who read just the basic um, ammunition handbooks or presentations from Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, British Aerospace, and all those producers knew what can, what these weapons can do, and what will they change. Um, Ukraine has shown the world that there is. American technology in this regard is so far ahead of everyone. I think the Chinese have right now a pretty rude awakening because they're like realizing everything they built to fight America over Taiwan in the future is inferior to what America has. Second thing, everyone that has bought Russian equipment in the last 20 years now realizes the Russian stuff is junk. Um, what is this going to change? A, America will sell lots of more weapons to a whole host of new countries. And America has restored a certain deterrence to crazy countries like Iran to not annoy the United States because America has proven if it's a war, nation against nation, America can just wreck them, every other nation on the planet. Um, if it's against somebody like the Taliban or the Viet Cong, who isn't a state actor, it's getting really, really difficult to fight them. The Germans had trouble with the Yugoslav partisans in World War I, uh, II. The Soviets had trouble with the Afghanistan uh, partisans, mujahideens in Afghanistan in the 80s, the Americans have trouble with the Taliban, the Americans have trouble with the Viet Cong, the Kenyans and the Ethiopians have trouble with the Islamist rebels in Somalia, rebels that basically the Turkish have trouble with the Kurdish fighters and so on. Um, to fight against the resistance movement, it's much, much more difficult. You want to defeat them, you have to drain their support, like in Colombia, by developing the economy. It drains the pool of recruits from them if you just develop the economy. Um, but nation against nation, 
the US is going to destroy everyone who tries to challenge it. And every European nation now understands that the whole idea that Europe should just develop its own stuff that comes 20 years and is inferior to American, American technology is just bonkers. Before this war, Germany and France was like, and other countries, you know, we should develop our own European electronic warfare platform like the EA 18G growler that the US Navy has developed. And we should develop that based on a Euro fight that will take 10 years. 10 years means it will come in 2030 something and it will be 30 years after the American put the EA 18 G growler into service. Eight, 2005? Don't remember. So it will be 30 years later than the American stuff and it will cost more. So the European countries finally realize just buy American stuff for certain things. So it's good for the world that the world has realized that there is just one superpower and it is not joking around when it is threatened or its allies are threatened. So that's really good. And all the weapons that we see now, officers have known about their capabilities, and now the world sees it too. And people realize why the United States spends $700 billion on defense. There you go. It's a good answer for those who complain. Uh, you, you knew at one, day, at one point it would work out well, and it has uh, for freedom and democracy. Constantine, over to you. Then we're going to go to Jens. There's a few other people who keep coming up. Uh, PJ Style and JP, if you don't have your hand up, I'm going to cite you down because we have a lot of people uh, who are trying to get in and they can't. So uh, let's go to Constantine. Thanks. All right, his mic might be uh, he might be away from the the phone, so we're going to go to Jens F from Denmark. Go ahead, Jens. Yes, thank you so much for returning. When I listen to you, Thomas, you don't sound like a big bundle of pessimism, and I think all of us can see that uh, Russia is in a great big uh, world of hurt. But still, uh, the co-hosts spend a lot of time every day addressing people's worries. We we go from Belarusia to Iran to power plants and stuff is there, and it seems like every news that comes out of of Russia is always met with urgency and and worry. Is there a way to change that perspective a little bit? Okay. Um... I'm not worried because everything that Russia has been doing for the last few weeks, months, is out of desperation. Threatening nuclear war. Making red lines that are ignored immediately, like Putin. It's a red line if someone attacks Crimea or Russia. And in Crimea, airfields blow up. And in Belgorod, uh, electricity stations and airports and air defense systems blow up and Putin is like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Don't touch my bridge. And the bridge blows up and Putin is like, yeah, it was a truck bomb. So the Russians are completely desperate and they're throwing out red lines and nuclear war threats and annexations and mobilizations out of desperation. 
that tr basically Putin is throwing every piece of shit he can find at the wall and hope one of them will stick and then it will scare the West. Um, one of the key things with a dictator that is so delusional is to be just like, we ignore you and we just go on and on because we have already understood you're in a corner and you're desperate and you don't know what to do, but your key interest is regime survival. Because everything that Putin has done so far is trying to keep him and his regime in power. He hasn't done anything to basically um, expand the war. He hasn't done anything to draw in NATO. He's just talking and threatening. But in the end, what you can tell is his biggest worry is to stay in power and die with 95 in his palace in his sleep. Um, so the Russians, what they are doing, I mean, Belarus, I said it today, this looks like a demonstration, basically moving up and down troops to keep the Ukrainians on their toes and force them to keep 100,000 troops up there. Uh, if the Ukrainians then move all these troops away, then maybe this is an opportunity for Russia to really attack. But right now, it looks like a demonstration. And I don't think that Putin will attack because that would basically mean that there's Belarus going down in a civil war because half the troops of Belarus might not even follow the order to attack Ukraine. And Russia doesn't have the troops to to uh, in any way support Belarus's dictator uh, Lukashenko now. Basically, Russia already had to give, give up on Armenia because uh, when Armenia was asking Russia to help, it has to tell um, Armenia twice, Putin, fuck off, I don't have anything that I can help you with. So um, Putin is losing left and right Troops and material and support and the economy is starting to crumble and people are running away that are pillars of the economy and he's just desperate. And the whole thing here that I ask myself all the time is how long can Putin drag this out until some officers come into his palace and shoot him? Which is basically the classic way how the czars were removed from power, you know? Uh, we, we've been saying this, Thomas, from the beginning, and, and the, the questioner is correct. We get this on a daily basis. Yeah, but, you know, it, it'll go on the nukes and the oil and the gas, and people are going to be chilly in Germany. They're going to have to wear extra blankets at night. And then the nuclear again circles back, and then it's Belarus. The only reason why the Belarus thing, as, 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 as Thomas nailed it right on the spot there, it's a demonstration. It's a, it's a, this is a mission task for But what he's saying is that any good commander on the Ukrainian side is going to say, well, I don't think they're going to attack because if we do get situated and, and they have kill zones and they have defensive positions, I'm not saying they're 100% manned, but they're very well manned. But if, if they do do this, just out of caution, we're going to have to, as you said, move 100,000 troops or augment the 50 that are there and put another 50. Uh, and that, that's something that prudent people do. So this, this could be just a, an attempt by Putin to try to lower or degrade the concentration of force that the Ukrainians have in other parts of Ukraine and, and, and direct forces there. But again, at best, it's a demonstration. But all of these, there's a confluence of all of these points where people seem to think, I don't, I don't, I mean, I get accused every day, Thomas, through DMs, you're, this is optimistic, you know, don't be so sure. It's not much to be so sure about because we saw 
the Russian military adventure collapsed in March. The question is, how long would it take to fully crumble? And, and when would the Ukrainians exploit Russian weaknesses? Obviously, waiting for the Ukrainians to get a ton of land lease equipment would probably be the smartest thing that a Ukrainian commander would do, because why risk it? Correct, Thomas? Yes, and since Ukraine has 1.3 million men under arms, they can just, you know, leave 100,000 up there. It's not going to take away from their offensive capabilities down in the south or in the east. So between territorial forces, police forces, active military, reserve forces, and, 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 the Ukrainians have, you can write it down, Russian spies, 1.3 million at least under arms. And get this, 1.3 million is still less percentage-wise than the Croatians had in 1995 when they drove the Serbians out of their country. The Croatians back then had uh, um, wait, uh, 5.6% of population under arms. And for Ukraine, 5% would be about uh, 2 million. So the Ukrainians still have the ability, if they wanted to, to raise another 700,000 men and still keep their economy running and working. So um, Putin with 300,000 men is basically just putting a, a, a few firemen on the line and it's not going to help him to stem the Ukrainian fire because the Ukrainians have so many men. And unlike the Russians who have not gone home for seven months, the Ukrainians are being rotated partially out of the front and sent home to see their families and take some rest. So uh, if I'm a Ukrainian commander, I know I can leave 100,000 men with a bit older equipment up towards Belarus because I have enough men down there to fight and defend Kharkiv and defend Sumy and strike at the Russians towards Melitopol and cut them off. So, yeah, there's basically the Ukrainians are having so far done everything right. And I'm not optimistic. I'm a realist because um, no military officer is optimistic. It's just very realistic to look at the situation. And from the situation, what I see is Russia is defeated. We are discussing now the question how long it takes for Russia to accept it has been defeated. That's the question. What Thomas, what would you what would you have said if because uh, people said to me what would scare me? What would scare me is if Russia miraculously came out with NATO tactics that you know what we are changing our entire military training structure, our force generation models, and we are going to bring a million and a half troops in a year and a half to bear. Uh, that might make me go, home, oh, okay, well they've caught on somehow. Let me know in a year and a half. But other than that, it's more of the same. You know, a lot of people, when you saw the first three days, okay, everyone made excuses because we all didn't believe the Russians were that bad, right? We said it must have been conscripts. It must have been they weren't ready. They thought it was going to be an easy cakewalk. Okay, whoa, they're going to put on, and we had a lot of people coming here, you know, talking heads, self, self-proclaimed experts who took an online course at University of Phoenix in military strategy. And they said, oh, wait, wait you wait. You just wait, Thomas, till those Russians are going to put their team out. Right now, they're just playing, but they're going to come back. And then they came back. What happened was worse than the first time. And then they, they when they asked Ukraine in the in, in central part of Ukraine, did phase two, their Donbass, there was nothing special. They just used artillery, destroyed everything, and moved up. Every actual 
engagement where the Ukrainians had to use maneuver warfare uh, versus the Russians. The Russians lost impact like almost all the all the time actually. Uh, when there are three counteroffensives before the big one in in the north, they had already done a counteroffensive in Kiev. They had done one in Kharkiv in the beginning, and then in Kherson about two three months ago. And in every situation, they bested the Russians. There, there. It, it, it's not that we get annoyed, but when you're telling people who do this for a living that you know, just wait. If the Russians, they've got some secret weapon, super soldier. Um, if you saw it not work the first five times, there's a pretty strong chance it's not going to work the sixth and the seventh and the ninth. It's not going to happen. And all, all that matters here, and there are people that talk about heavy Ukrainian casualties. There are going to be heavy Ukrainian casualties. They're on the offensive. They have to retake land that was theirs. The difference is the Russians do have mass, not, not quality, but it will take time. It's not a question of, of if, it is a question of when. But it, the, the Russian ability to prosecute the war does not get better with time. It gets worse. And not just in the fact that the initial troops were their better troops, whatever that means. Now we literally have men in green clothing. They're not soldiers. They're literally people off the street. When I say off the street, some of them have even been just taken off the street, which is it's kind of like a joke because we use it as an expression. You know, yeah, they just pick that guy off the street, put him in the job. That's what they're doing. So giving them green clothes doesn't, you know, does not a soldier make. So as they go down in not just quality of training or lack of training, they go down in morale. And as they go down morale, their 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 ability to resupply precision guided missiles is heavily reduced, if not completely degraded. I'm sure Thomas can get into details about chips and whatnot. Um, but their, their ability to, to resupply is down. They're, they're going to crap whole places like Iran to get and apparently now surface to surface missiles and drones. They are literally, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Now, Ukraine, their population was always motivated, but I can't imagine that all these victories would make them less motivated, except more motivated if it was possible. And, and they're getting resupplied daily with the best weaponry ever made by human beings. So then now ask yourself the question, who's going to win? You cannot ignore this. So Thomas nailed it. The nuclear, the this, the economic, these are all desperate measures by a person who cannot prosecute or he cannot win this war. So what he's doing is he's trying to, uh, he's trying to get into the feelings of people in the West who grew up maybe in the Cold War, who grew up with air raid sirens. And, and he's, he's, oh, nuclear, and hoping that some 300,000 troops, oh, 300,000 troops, he's leading us to World War III. What are you talking about? These people are not actually analyzing the situation. They're not examining what, what Putin is bringing to the battle space. It's nothing. And at the beginning of this conflict, I'm not going to lie, Thomas, you weren't here. We had a, a senior political figure, Swedish, from Gotland. It was when the Russians sent a drone or an airplane somewhere near general vicinity of Gotland. And God bless her. I was shocked. I think she was mad at me because we were interviewing her. She was convinced that there could be a nuclear attack on Sweden. This was in April. And she, 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 was, she was mad at me like for poo-pooing the idea. She thought that I was being flippant, I, suspo- I suppose, I suspect. So that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the mindset of the person that Putin is trying to get to. You know, the biggest enemy of that threat is not Putin, it's ourselves. 
It's the people who think that in the West. It's the person who suspects, oh my goodness, you cannot give in to nuclear blackmail. It does not work. He doesn't mean it. He knows it's the end quicker, uh, but he's doing his best to make fault lines. I, I don't know if anyone knows uh, a very strange human being who I don't know online named Jimmy Dore. don't know who he is, but I just saw a lot of him chirping. Apparently he's a comedian. Uh, he tells a lot of jokes in everything he says, so maybe that's apropos. But this guy's saying, literally, this is because America wants to sell gas to Europe, so they started a war with Russia. And this guy's some, like, far right, but was left, and then he's far right, and then the guy's confused, doesn't know where he is. But that's the type of person that Putin is cultivating. He's he's cultivating the person that is not very, you know, I'm not, I'm going to say it, they're not very intelligent people. They, they look at things in a very, very a childlike manner, that this equals that, and I mean, there are no other factors that affect an equation, it's just A to B, and that's it. If they can't see anything outside of A to B, then it doesn't make sense. But these people who start saying these things like gas, yeah, America wants to sell LNG because that's the easiest way to sell LNG. Just ship it over to Europe because that makes sense. Uh, but they, no, no, and that's why, and, and, and Putin just wanted to sort out Ukraine, Russian speakers in Ukraine. Yeah. The only, the, the biggest threat to our security right now is the crazy talk within our societies that want us to believe that somehow we're at, we're the, the victims are the, are the, are the perpetrators. They're not. These are lies. This is only meant to obfuscate, to confuse, to create confusion. Thank God the American leadership, bipartisan, Republican, Democrat, none of them care about that. All the adults in Washington could care less. They know what he's about, and thank God they're all on the same side. Same with the NATO leaders. Regardless of what Germany does, I'm sure people even in Germany know that Putin is full of crap. Thomas, any follow-on to that? Yeah, just a quick note, because I think Chuck is next up, and I don't want to take away from his time. No, he wants to talk to you, he said, too. Okay, wonderful. Uh, listen, um, Rush, if Putin said, okay, I will try to raise 1.5 million men and equip them, it would wreck his economy. If it takes 1.5 million men out of the Russian economy, it collapses. Um, if it takes 1.5 million men, he doesn't have the non-commissioned officers to train them. He doesn't have the officers to lead them. He doesn't have the guns. He doesn't have the food. He doesn't have the ammunition. He doesn't have the, the, the trucks to bring them to the front. It's all ridiculous bluster. And the people who fall for it are those that don't understand what is going on. You can tell Elon Musk is a cretin who has inherited a lot of money from his parents, and that's why he could found companies and become a billionaire. Because he understands nothing from military matters. And he is running, oh, Putin said that, Putin said that, oh, I'm scared. Incompetent hack. No military officer is scared. Not a single NATO military officer is scared of Putin. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. The question here is, how long can Putin drag it out until he gets whacked by his officers? And how many Ukrainians have to die and how many Russians have to be killed to achieve that? Once we are past 100,000 dead Russians, the Russian military leadership and the Russian population will start to really think, what the hell are we doing? So, 
I'm right, not very. You nailed it, Thomas. You t- it, it's, it's, it is that simple, and I agree. I, I've said it from the beginning. I don't think it's the billionaire who doesn't get to buy more yachts in Monaco. I think it's going to be a massively degraded Russian military. The military leadership itself, mid-level and up, is going to say, someone's got to get rid of that guy because we're done. I, the, the, there's going to be a Russian... That is the point. Mid-level yeah. officers. Putin yeah. only allowed loyal, uh, murderous crooks to be general. But the colonel, colonels and majors who have to go and fight and die in Ukraine, they have something to lose. And they control the units. You know, if some, col- if some major says to his battalion, we're not doing this shit, the battalion is going to follow him and not some general in Moscow. So mid-level yeah. Nuno Felix is not here. He's a Portuguese officer, but he would tell us that in Portugal, the Salazar dictatorship was in power almost 40 years. And he sent the soldiers to die in colonial wars in Angola and in Mozambique and were not. And the generals, after 40 years, were all lickspittles, corrupt assholes, complete incompetent hacks. And the captains and the majors and the colonels who had to lose something because they would have to go into the jungle of Angola and fight rebels and die. They made a coup. They got rid of him. They brought Portugal to democracy. And we will see the same in Russia. And if this doesn't happen, we will see a civil war in Russia. The war is over. People that are like Elon Musk, they need to chill. Go out, fly with your plane some donuts over Los Angeles. Wait, Do something (laughs) useful with your time. Don't annoy the expert with what Elon Musk doesn't understand. Amen. Well, from you, would, you called it, by the way, uh, Thomas, uh, you don't know this, but uh, at the end of the third week of March, uh, you would are here on this space in a discussion, in a very lively discussion, called this a strategic defeat and the remainder being just bloody battles. And that's exactly what it is. And uh, every single general thereafter who came here, whether it was Mark Hartling, Ben Hodges, Nick Ryan, or Pekka Tovari has come to the same conclusion for different pur- from different angles, for different purposes, but that is exactly it. Now it's all a bloody battle. The question is how quickly can it be ended with a victory? The, the lives, you said it here, I said that the, the lives of, uh, the, this war will be measured, or the defense of Ukraine will be measured in the blood of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. Mm-hmm. And, and, and anything that, that mitigates that and, and, and reduces that number is what we need to do. And how do we do, reduce that number? Give the Ukrainians what they need to minimize those deaths. They're gonna die. Thousands more will die. It's, it's horrible to even say that, but it's true. You know, I have a friend in, in Ukraine who said, yeah, but apparently we're losing other, yes, you're losing troops because you're gaining territory. But at the end of the day, there is, there is no other play for Russia. You will have to dislodge them. That, the more weapons we give. So the way I look at it is, I'm not trying to sound mean, but anyone who detracts from the, the supporting Ukraine, uh, with militarily, um, you are actually prolong, you are the one prolonging the war. Those who, there are actually people in this planet that say by giving Ukraine weapons, you're prolonging the war. What, prolonging the, the, the defense of, you know, from genocide? I mean, if the Russians took Ukraine, you know, they're already deporting more and more people from occupied Ukraine as we speak. They're, the only way to, to shorten this war is give literally the, everything in the kitchen sink to the Ukrainian military. Let them do their job. They have to sacrifice their lives. They're not asking for our lives. They're not asking for your kids to go and fight for them. But for, if you're gonna, if you, if you're not gonna be in that camp, do everyone a favor. Mind your own business, right? Because you're not helping 
when you're when you're talking those who say oh you know accept a peace treaty a peace treaty for what what is a peace treaty you know there's one i'll tell you this i'll say it here and i th- i guarantee you this will be the ukrainian's position and the west's position you want to know what the negotiations will be about thomas you want to know what the nego- you know what you know the only thing to negotiate the real negotiation isn't whether russia keeps part of ukraine it's not whether russia gives back the children or brings back the kidnapped people or if it keeps crimea the real negotiation is how far down the food chain that we will go to prosecute war criminals from Putin down, like do we go just to the generals, we go for colonels, and how big of a demilitarized zone on the Russian side of the border, how, how many kilometers wide should it be? If you want to negotiate, Mr. Musk, or other people who say negotiate, I, I'm all up for negotiation. How is it 50 kilometers or is it 75 kilometers from the Ukrainian border that the Russians can't be with heavy weapons or soldiers? That, that, that's a good negotiating starting point. Or on top of it, should we have peacekeepers on the Russian side of the border to stop the Russians from doing this again? Not just in Ukraine, but in the Baltic area and in Kazakhstan. And should there be UN troops or NATO troops or maybe EU troops? You know, if you want to talk about negotiation, stop starting at the bottom. All right. You, if you're on the side of Ukraine, you start at the top. All right. Regime change. Putin's gone. War crimes investigations. A demilitarized zone in Russia. So if you think it's funny, for those who think it's funny, you're probably the same person that thinks that Ukraine should give up parts of the Donbass to Russia for the sake of peace. How about this? For the sake of peace, Russia should accept a 75-kilometer non-demilitarized zone inside its own borders along every border with every country because it's proven that it can't play nice-nice on the playground. Uh, We don't reward bullies for bad behavior. We punish them. That's what I would say. Yeah, and one thing here that I want to interject. Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait in August 1990, and he annexed Kuwait as a uh, Iraqi province. And in every negotiation, his position was, yes, we can talk with Bush about everything, but we don't negotiate about Kuwait. It doesn't exist. It's Iraq now. And then the Americans showed him what uh, the superpower can do. And the next negotiations that happened were like, can we retreat with our tanks? And Schwarzkopf was like, meow, nope, nope. And the Iraqis had to leave their tanks. So, and the idea that you negotiate with, that you start negotiations with a hundred percent what the enemy wants, what the hell? He is losing Putin. The loser doesn't get to set the terms from what we start negotiations. Hmm? And again, I'm circling back to to, to the creepy guys like Kim.com and some uh, Matt Getz, who is basically probably the Russians have sex tapes on him or whatever. And all these people are like, oh, we need to give in to Putin and we need to negotiate. And he sets the conditions from what we negotiate away. Um yeah, please. It's kind of like when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, then uh, Roosevelt would have been like, yes, dear Japanese, let's start negotiations with you can have California. That's where we start negotiations with the, the Japan after Pearl Harbor. I mean, nobody in America would have allowed Roosevelt to be president after he said something like that. So the idea that we should do the West, 15 nations, it's the biggest coalition since World War II, and it's the most powerful coalition in the history of the world okay 
because in World War II, the powerful nations of England and France and America fought against Germany and Japan, the next powerfuls, and now everybody's in the same boat against Russia, which is, Russia is an African country and with uh, gas and gasoline. It's not economy-wise anywhere near Europe or Asian countries. Um, so we don't negotiate with Russia. That's the first thing. Russia gets surrender terms, and if they don't accept them, then we kill more Russians. It's very simple. That's what the Russians told the German delegation in Berlin in May 1945. You surrender unconditionally or we kill more Germans. What is your decision? Okay. You can play that well, game. Can, can I just say something? Was restrained. 